Isaiah chapter 53, verses, verses 10. 10 to 12. Not a long reading. <laughs> Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. Amen. And the Lord bless this reading. When I saw the papers going down from the, from the music stands, I got a kick out of that, Dave, and I thought maybe as I go through pages of the sermon, I'll just throw them down, and uh, yeah, that's right. Good morning, everybody. Let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we can have a look at your word, and God, we ask that you would just fill this time uh, with anointing, that God, you would bless uh, all of us. Father, it's not just about... Uh, just the words that I say, it's really about how you encounter us with Scripture. And so, God, we ask that you would just fill this time and that, Father, it would be a time that draws us closer to you. So bless us this morning as we embark uh, together to look at Isaiah 53. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, today we do conclude a series, as David mentioned, of Isaiah 53. Uh, we'll know from the last few sermons that this is the fourth servant song that comes from the 52nd and 53rd chapters of Isaiah. And, and really, th this whole book of Isaiah has a, a really contemporary relevance for us. One of the overarching themes that you th see throughout the whole thing is this call for us to simply trust God. Um, during the time when this was written, you would have had people who were just looking to different things looking for other things to find their hope, their comfort, their peace. And it's no different today. I mean, we look to different things. We look to relationships. If we could just get that job, if we could just find that right house, live in the right place, live in pit lockery, that sort of thing. We, we have things that we look to that we put our trust in. And even in Isaiah chapter 1, it, it's as if this book opens with this call to return to me, to come to me. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, Come now. Let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So throughout this first half of the book, we see this proclamation, this moral prophecy, if you will, of a call to both Judah and, and also enemies of the Hebrew people to come to God, to repent, to turn away from sin. And as, as well as this moral or social prophecy that we see in the first half of the book, as we move into the second half of the book, we see a lot of predictive prophecy, particularly uh, where we find our passage today. We see lots of predictive prophecy. Now, some of these prophecies that are in Isaiah were fulfilled within a couple hundred years, just a short couple hundred years after it was written. 
But as you'll know from our introduction with Isaiah, this song, these things were fulfilled 700 years later with Jesus. We've spoken about how it would be difficult for the prophet to write about things that he certainly would not understand. I mean, think about how the world's changed in the last 10 years. Things 20 years ago, could you imagine life like with the internet? Imagine back to the days of just the VCR. How could we predict what it would look like 10 years from even now? 700 years ago. There are some things that still have not been fulfilled that we find in the passage today that will come when Christ comes again. But a lot of predictive prophecy and some amazing things that we see in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more frequently than any other Old Testament book. It's probably fair to say that this particular passage we've been looking at over the last few weeks is one of these just strong predictive prophecies about Jesus, and it's also synced. We see this wonderful picture of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, and it gives us wonderful clarity as to what God's rescue plan is with the Messiah for our sin. It's a beautiful thing. And we are the fruit and the beneficiaries of this victory that we see in this passage. It's because of Christ's suffering and his victory that we're here today. It's why we worship. It's why we gather. It's why we have the relationships that we have with each other through God. So let's look a little bit closer at these verses that Ann just read, verses 10 through 12, and and try to grab some things. Just so you know, that the version that I'm using is actually the New American Standard. It's not because I'm partial to Americans, but I, I felt like, particularly with this first verse, it gives us a bit more of the nuance of what we're looking at today. So we'll do that in just a moment, but um, it, it starts off a bit dodgy uh, with, with, some, with a difficult sentence, and it, and it got me to reflecting about moments when I've seen other people's pain and kind of liked it. Now, maybe I'm a really bad guy, but maybe you can identify with this. Have you ever been on the motorway and some Yahoo, you see them in the rearview mirror just driving like a maniac, and you just think they're making everybody's life dangerous, and they're going to hurt us, and then they zip by you? Have have you ever just thought to yourself, man, I just hope that a police officer just sees that nonsense? (laughs) Occasionally, I've had that moment where I've passed the blue lights and the guy pulled over to the side. I'm trying to be more gracious. I'm trying to just assume when I see this happening that it's a person who needs to get to the hospital. But I gotta be honest, there's a part of me that thinks, I hope they get theirs. I mean, or or, or maybe you've watched a movie where we all know as the audience, we're watching the television, we know who the bad guy is. We see the gun hidden under the table, but the other characters, they don't know what's going on. And you're just like, ah, get them, get justice. So we all have these moments where we actually occasionally might will or want for something bad to happen to somebody else. We want things to be right. And here, and this is our passage. Let's see, do we have the, are, are, are the things working? I'll go ahead and we'll rely on this a little bit. It won't be necessary if it doesn't work. If you recall last time I preached, this happened, and we didn't have any videos, but just fine. Um, we have these moments. The first part of verse 10, look at this. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. I don't know if it's me or you. There it is. The sense here is not, it's not like when you go to the gym. No pain, no gain. It's not this sort of thing where this, this, you're not just crushing your goals. All right? This is really the sense of something awful. It says the word grief here, where it says putting him to grief. Another way to think of that word is just to be made sick. We had a daughter who was a little sick this weekend, 
and you could just see it on her face. She was so uh, pale and unhappy. She's fine now. She's recovering today, but you know that sense of just when you just feel miserable? It's not even that. This is awful. Jesus dies the death of a non-believer. He's separated from God. Do you remember when he's on the cross? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not the death of a martyr. This is not the death of uh, someone who's comforted. It says it pleases God. It pleased the Lord to crush him. No grace, no comfort, only abandonment. Grief made sick. Even though verse 9 describes Jesus as without sin, the, the verse that we looked at last week, God was pleased to see Jesus as utterly sinful. Jesus, having never sinned, he, he actually took the place for us. I'm tempted to kind of sit here for a while and just sit on this first part of the sentence and labor it because I, I think it's a really bit disconnected from us. When we think of Jesus, we think of his love, and he loves us so much, and this is a picture of it. We think of God as loving but sin is awful, and what Jesus went through is absolutely horrific. And, and I think sometimes we can even be disconnected from our own sinfulness. And it's awful. It's awfulness and our own guilt before God. So when it says here, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, there is a reason that God was pleased to do this. Ha have you ever had anybody misinterpret something you've said? Does this ever happen? Maybe you said something in one context and somebody took that and did something else with it. People do that with Jesus all the time. And it's easy to take people's words and make them say what you want, isn't it? We can be quite manipulative. But you know what it's like to be taken out of context. And, and we shouldn't do that to each other. And we certainly shouldn't do it to God. If you haven't had that experience of being taken out of context, it's probably happened to you and you just don't know it. Some atheists see a verse like this, they see a sentence like this, and they describe God as awful. And they'll use this sentence here to talk about how awful God is, this God of the Old Testament. I have certainly met folks who like this notion of a God of the New Testament, they don't really understand this God of the Old Testament and, and see something bad. It wasn't because of Jesus' agony or the fact that he was crushed that God is pleased. What God's pleased about is what follows after. And, and we know that this alone would not be God's character. When you've heard that bad thing about somebody, have you ever heard something bad about somebody? And you, it's like, actually, that doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense that you would say this about that person. When you know someone's character, you have to kind of ask a question. You have to say, wait a second. What's going on here? In Ezekiel 18, uh, it's another book and passage where we see God calling his people back to him or calling people to repent and come back to him. This is what... The Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel, it says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. We know actually there's something else going on here when it comes to describing God's pleasure is this. So what's this about? This is certainly one of those times where you have to keep reading. You have to keep listening. You have to keep looking. Because it's conditional on this. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... This pleasure of God is not in the pain of the suffering servant, but it's in the outcome of Jesus submitting himself as an offering for our sin, to he, for humanity. The character of God is good. So when an atheist wants to call God, quote, 
jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, etc. When people want to do that, we have to say, hold on. Just like it wasn't true in this atheist perspective, and it's just not true when somebody says not something about you that's not right, we have to say, stop it. We sang about God's goodness. We declared his goodness only moments ago. What's going on here is this final crushing that the Lord was pleased to see, that he was pleased to see Jesus go through, was all about what was accomplished. And the original hearers of this song would totally be in touch with this. They would understand that when they see the sentence here, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, it would register what Jesus is doing, what this servant is doing. There are five offerings that you would find in Leviticus 1 through 7. We'll just do this quickly. I don't want to, to belabor this, but I, just to give you a context of how this would have sounded to those who it was written to, um, you've got the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, sin offering, and the guilt offering, which is mentioned here in this text. Three of these, oh, I love it. Three of these are actually offerings where there's an animal sacrifice. Now, he just said animal sacrifice in the church service. Do you see how this is foreign to us? And it might even be a bit uncomfortable, but, but actually the benefit of understanding it is it gives us a picture of why this is happening. The Old Testament gives us the context of what we're able to enjoy today. So you have these five sacrificial offerings. The burnt offering was performed to atone for people's sin against the Lord. It was, it was a declaration of, of my life being made right with you. So that was the burnt offering. The meal offering was a bit of a, a thanks offering. You know, sometimes you've got to make something right. Sometimes you just want to say thanks. That's what that's about. The peace offering was a free will offering as well. It was, offering, it was often to just say, praise you and thank God as well. The sin offering was a bit different in that it was meant to pay for the debt in full, the unintentional things that we do. Uh, does anybody else have an intentional sin that probably creeps up in their lives occasionally? It's just me. That's okay. All right, no. That was kind of a dumb question, huh? We know. When we get to this guilt offering, when we get to this one, this one not only deals with the debt, but also makes atonement for the debt. It, it, it actually pays back plus makes up a little bit of extra for what was done wrong. There's a, there's a money offering that goes with it as well. It sometimes was connected with fraud and making things right. So it wasn't not just paying for the debt, it was actually restitution as well. It's this fuller thing. Jesus is offered to us as, and to God as complete restitution. He's the guilt offering. God is pleased, not at the agony, but the atonement. This is divine justice being fulfilled in sorting. And it was a promise 700 years before Jesus was here. But it was something that we could put our faith in, that people could put their faith in then, and we can put our faith in now. So there's this victory that comes through this suffering. That was for God. There's also... Jesus' victory through this pain. It wasn't just that God was pleased and it worked out well for God. There were also some things for Jesus that we see in these verses as well. Implicit in the rest of verse 10 is that Jesus will live after he's dead. I don't know if it's um, explicit, but it's, it's here. It's implied here because the first statement here is he will see his offspring. 
Jesus was not only resurrected, but his resurrection would result in spiritual offspring. I have a couple of, of early memories of hearing about Jesus. I grew up in a home um, that was, was not hostile to the gospel. We went to, the, to church. Actually, we was Catholic growing up. But we were a bit, um, and, and David can probably admit, there's probably some of this in me today, we were a bit hostile to different expressions of Christianity. Okay? There were was, was some crazies out there. <laughs> we, were, we were quite relaxed and conservative in our, in our Catholic context. And no, if, I mean, if for those of you who have the similar background than, with me, then you'll understand some of this perhaps. But in America, we had all these televangelists that would come on TV, and, and, and those guys were crazy. Okay? Now, we also happened to live next door to some folks of that flavor. And they would have people come and do backyard Bible clubs. Do you do backyard Bible clubs in Scotland? Okay, so this would be some young people, maybe teenagers, or, and they would come and they would present Jesus. They would do the gospel. Now, my parents were relaxed enough that I could go over next door and go to the backyard Bible club. And I can still remember an early memory of the wordless book, which is a presentation of, of how God reconciles us. It's the story of what's happening here, and it just uses pictures to explain the gospel. I remember it. I also remember the story with a woman slipping on a banana, but I don't remember what that was about. So there's that one. I can remember early on sitting with my great-grandmother. She had this honking big Bible, and it had some pictures of it. I can remember the picture of Lazarus and Abraham and Abraham's bosom and just the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Early memories. Those two experiences have contributed to my spiritual journey in knowing God. Now, I say all that because you need to understand that uh, this, this fulfillment of this prophecy of Jesus having all this offspring, we are part of this. We are part of his offspring, and we also can be involved in his offspring happening. There are a number of people who may not have children biologically, perhaps even in this room. But do you know that you have offspring? That you have an opportunity to contribute to the growth of others? Jesus himself did not have biological children. But yet this text says he will see his offspring. We are his offspring. That's the prophecy fulfilled today, right now. And it's part of the victory. Jesus, Jesus models when we do right things, we do hard things. Sometimes the most painful things, there's a legacy. And we're part of that. The scripture also says he will prolong his days. Jesus was resurrected. He came back to life. He's alive now. His days were prolonged because he conquered death. He came back to life. We have him being crushed and killed, but now he's alive. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Have you ever had an unmet expectation? Do you know what I mean? Like it's, you thought something was going to happen or this was going to work a certain way and it didn't, didn't work out. I'm, Jocelyn's not here, so I can tell you about this one, but don't, don't bring it up. So... We went to a, be like a, a Curry's, I think that's what the, the, the story is here, uh, it was Best Buy in the States, and there was this master gardener software program. And I thought, we had just bought our first house together, and I thought, man, this will help us lay out a landscape architect plan, and, we can, and it's going to just be great, and it's going to make it easy, and we can do all our plants, and it was $60 for this program. And Jocelyn saw it, and she said, don't buy that. That is going to be a waste of money. I said, no, no, it's going to be good. It's going to be great. I bought the Master Gardener program. I put it in the CD player in the computer, 
and I tried to use the Master Gardener program, and it was awful. <laughs> it was so clunky. I couldn't figure out any of this stuff. I didn't know what to do with this thing, and I wasted that money. But I had this expectation that this thing was going to make it great. It was going to be wonderful. I, was, I think it was with Heinel this week. We were talking about the story of the Red Sea and how if I were an Israelite and I was being pursued by the Egyptians and I got to the Red Sea, I would be sitting there thinking about how are we going to build a boat? I would be trying to solve this on my own. I'd try to figure out how do we get across? But what God does, if we give things to his hands, is he sorts it out in ways that we couldn't imagine. When it says here, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand, maybe I'm a bit selfish in thinking about this, but Jesus can do things and prosper things when it's in his hands that we cannot do if we leave it to us. And he does. He can do things that are overwhelmingly good, things that are beyond us. He can take what we have and do things we cannot. In John 10:10, 10, 10, it says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. So when I'm wrestling with this passage, one of the questions I'm asking is, am I a part of this? Am I, and it's not a prosperity gospel thing, but am I just letting the Lord take my limitations and my things and do what he wants to do? Because that's where it happens. It's when we actually give him these things. I have verse 11 up there. As a result, there it is. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Jesus knows satisfaction is coming through pain. I think that's why we see him willingly submitting himself as a guilt offering. This crushing, this bruising that's being made, making him sick has a purpose. From suffering to satisfaction. So again, as, as I'm thinking, what, what's this look like for us to, to process? And, and I don't think we should always take scripture and make it about us, but if we're to follow Jesus, if we see this model that Jesus has laid out for us, what are the implications for us? Can, can you identify a bit of purposeful pain that perhaps you might need to choose to go through? What things do we need to do that actually will be painful but will, will lead to satisfaction because of what God's going to do? I'm not going to make you answer, but I think it's something to think on. I think it's something to process. Mark 8, 34 through 35 says this, and it says, And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For, wherever he wish, went, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake shall save it. Where do we need to take up our cross? Where do we need to follow the model of our Savior? So we have, we have a progression here. So this, this first part of 10 and 11 are actually in a tense that's different than the rest of it. When we see what happens from this point on, it's actually, uh, the, the tense becomes singular and it's God speaking. So before this, you, you have this confession of, of Jewish folk who actually recognized the suffering servant, who recognized the Messiah after the fact. And it's a prediction that Jewish folk will recognize this. This part is now God speaking. It says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. 
as he will bear their iniquities. Jesus' death and resurrection is how we're justified before God. Jesus being offered up as a guilt offering, it makes restitution for our guilt. He literally bears our sins on the cross. He justifies us. Without him, we wouldn't have it. He is the righteous one, and it's important that it says that because it's through his righteousness that he can take on our guilt because he doesn't have to carry his own. And so it says he will bear their iniquities. That's us. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. If you'll remember, we saw this earlier in the song, but this is, again, that fulfillment of prophecy where Jesus was on the cross and he was next to sinners. He was numbered with sinners. I wonder, as as we've worked through Isaiah 53 as a congregation over the last few weeks, and even just now as we're thinking about what this means for us, have you found yourselves getting to know Jesus a little better? It says in a popular verse, I believe, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus has a rescue plan and he is wooing us to know him. And we see it in this passage. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing that he would go through all of this to make a relationship, to make a way for us to be right with God. It's a very powerful thing. There's a lot of pain here. God was delighted to crush his son so that a relationship could be restored with us. Some questions that we might ask of ourselves. What has to be crushed in us to maybe restore a relationship, be it with God or with others? I've told you before, and I, and I say this to the, to the students, when we talk about making things right, because God is all about reconciliation, Jesus modeled being the one to go first. Have you ever been in one of those conflicts where you don't know who, where it started or how it happened? And you're certainly not going to sort it out because it's them who made you mad. It was, their, it was because of them. And it can even get to the point where you don't even remember Or maybe you do remember, and you know exactly what happened, and you know that that other person was wrong. They were wrong. We were wrong. But Jesus went first. He sorted it out. So as I think one of the things we see modeled is that Jesus speaks first. He goes to those who've wronged him. He restores relationships. And it's because of this pain that there's victory Jesus was willing to be a guilt offering so he could come back to life and establish a way for us to know God. So Jesus himself had victory through pain because of what he was able to do for us and what's able to be happening with our relationships with him now. And all of this pain actually is a path towards glory. We see the Father glorifying Christ. There's victory that comes through this, a victory for us. So, What do we do about it? 
Where do we take this? I think we need to recognize that we're victors. It's easy to be victim-based in our society. We're always constantly thinking about the things that are wrong. But there's victory. And we should live in that. And we should share it with others. Jesus suffered to, to death on a cross. We can tolerate some social awkwardness occasionally, to just be honest. Think about it. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. And when we look at the model of Jesus with suffering, Father, help us to have an informed understanding of the role of suffering in our own lives. God, you teach us so many things through suffering. You teach us so many things through what goes wrong. And so, God, I ask that you would help me, you would help us to just cling to you when we're suffering. Thank you, Father, that you've modeled that. You, you don't ever ask us to do things that you have not modeled better. Jesus is the only place that we can go to to see a perfect model of how to suffer well. So, God, help us to cope with that. Help us to recognize that sometimes there's victory in that. Because, Lord, I just know that in this room there will be people who are suffering with all sorts of things. And, Lord, there's things that we don't even know about each other where they're suffering. So, Father, we just ask that you help us to cling to you in that. But, Father, also help us to not just live through suffering. Help us not just to just sit on it, but to recognize there is victory. There is hope. There is joy. There is offspring. There is legacy. And help us to live fully in that. Thank you, God, for the grace, the wonderful things you've done. Thank you for Jesus and that we could celebrate his work through this song. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.